Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. Content Warning In this episode, we will be talking in depth about wildfires. We are aware that many communities have been affected or are still being affected by wildfires. This episode includes discussions of firefighting techniques and reasons for increased fire risk in Western Canada. On this episode, I am joined by Adam Dodd, a former member of the Alberta Wildfire Crew. Adam has been on the front lines of some of the biggest wildfires recorded. We will talk about the insights from the front lines and factors increasing wildfire risk across the country, including climate change. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining me on the podcast. I am excited to have this conversation with you and talk about forest fires. And so if you could just describe your role in fighting forest fires and what that looked like and what your passion was to get into that. Yeah, certainly. And thank you for uh, having me on here. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I started with Alberta wildfire when I was 19 years old. I actually didn't want to do this, but my brother and his friend were so keen and so interested in it. And I saw them applying for the job and I was like, oh, this sounds pretty interesting. But I was so slammed with my midterm season in school that I didn't have time to apply for the job. So my brother, being the good guy he is, actually went out of his way and said, I'll do the application and help you out. And then you can just finalize everything. So anyways, put the application out and ended up getting a position with Alberta Wildfire. Now, the funny part of that story is my brother and his friend didn't end up getting the job and I did get the job. So again, shout out to my brother for hooking me up with his dream job when he wanted it the most. That led me into my first season of Wildfire, where I was a Helitac crew member, which is a crew of four people, and we're the rapid response crew for Alberta. And so we get dispatched on a fire. And then my fourth year was on the Alberta unit crew. And this is a crew of 20 individuals where we get sent to still initial attack fires, but more sustained action. So we're, we're hanging out on the fire a lot longer than my prior experience. Loved that season so much that I went back and I did extra training to become a uh, crew supervisor. And so this was a uh, position where you'd look after all of these crews, hell attack crews, unit crews. So that's kind of where I finished out my career in firefighting was the the crew supervisor and strike team leader. So I got to see a lot of the different aspects of it, which I'm super grateful for. Yeah, sounds like you got to see a lot and you went through a lot of seasons, which I, I would imagine that you probably saw a whole variety of different types of fires. Did you notice anything over those years of experience that changed? Did the fires change? Did the way that you were fighting them change? 
When I was going through training, there were only a handful of major incidents that we had gone over. And one of note would be the Slave Lake Fire. Anybody that's familiar with Alberta's wildfire history will definitely note Alberta Slave Lake Fire. But then during my, my seasons, I either had the pleasure or the interesting experience of fighting for McMurray's wildfire, which is something that is of note for extreme wildfire behavior, as well as uh, one up in um, Peace River region. And those two, which were during my years at the unit crew, were the most extreme fire behavior I had ever seen. Just so there's a bit of a reference on that is there was one morning, I remember super distinctly, the initial safety briefing meeting, and they talked about the uh, wildfire indices for the day. And typically it's like a very standard briefing, but today was quite different in the fact that there was a lot of winds and it was very, very dry. But he had mentioned something that I've never heard in my life before. And this was an a fire weather index around 80. And so just for perspective, uh, a typical day when we're fighting fires, we're typically seeing a fire weather index of around 13 or 14. And so this was at least six to seven times higher than that. That was the first wake up call for me that like these indices are just going through the roof. And it was especially noticeable when the incident commander said, I have never in my career seen a fire weather index this high. So to answer your question with the long story, yes, through my experience wildfire, things did seem to get obviously a little bit more increased and increased in terms of behavior and wildfire behavior. But it's also good to get that perspective from somebody that's been doing it for his whole career. We're talking 35 years saying, I have never seen indices this high in my, in my life. And could you explain <clears throat> what that measurement is? How do you calculate that? Yeah, certainly. There's a plethora of indices. And so you have your, your FFMCs, your fine fuel moisture code. And so these are things like leaves and grass and whatnot. You then go to what is called DMCs, and this is the duff moisture content. And so these are sticks that are roughly the size of, if you were to make your middle finger and thumb touch, that diameter would be roughly the size of those types of sticks or fuel, if you want to kind of categorize it. You, then the next layer you go to is the, the DC, the drought codes. So these are the large trees, the logs that have been laid over, and the large fuel types. And that kind of gives you measurement of how dry or how combustible these types of fuels are. From those three major indices, you can go off into a buildup index, a BUI, an ISI, which is an initial spread index. So that includes like the wind speed. FWI or fire wind weather index, the thing that I was referencing earlier, is essentially a, a whole perspective look on all these indices together. Looking at the FWI or fire weather index will give you a snapshot of what you're typically are going to see out there, either low fire behavior or high extreme fire behavior. From your perspective, looking at these communities that are being hit by these wildfires, there seems to be a buildup of these fuel loads. And from my understanding, there's one side of it is you have hotter temperatures. So it's leading to droughts, which then obviously dry out the forest. And the other side of it is like you have more dead trees because of invasive species. Certainly. And, and I'm really happy you brought uh, this up because this is such an important piece of the puzzle for fire behavior, I think. While it is getting hotter and drier, which is, can be attributed to the, the changing of the climate in certain zones, 
there's one item that I think is all too often overlooked. And, and that is the fact that we as humans have assets in our forests. And one of the main priorities of when we're fighting fires is to preserve these assets. And so when we go out to fight a fire, we're going out and we're trying to control, contain, and put this fire out. But this fire is a natural phenomenon. And so what this fire does is it cleans up the forest truly. So that for the next 10, 15, maybe 20 years, there isn't a buildup of all these dead trees laying around. And so one of the impacts that I think we're having on the forest is we're trying to control fire too much and we're not allowing fire to do its job. So when a fire does escape our control, like it all too often does, it has so much fuel that has been built up over the years that it's so much harder to contain or to put out. I think climate change is for sure playing a factor on the, the dryness and the, the extended heat waves and whatnot. But it, it's something that is can, undeniable, in at least my opinion, that humans are trying to control the climate and the ecosystems and whatnot is playing a, a massive role as well, because we're not allowing at least fire to do its purpose out there. I heard in a podcast recently, the U.S. Forest Fire Service, they changed their policies in 1910, because there was a huge forest fire in 1910 that then led to the 10 a.m. policy. Basically, they want to be putting it out by 10 a.m. the next morning. Does Canada have something similar to that 10 a.m. policy? We do. This kind of reverts back a little bit to my experience in hell attack or a rapid response team. And that's typically where this rule comes into play. So when you are dispatched to a fire, you need to make some decisions pretty quickly on what resources you need to control and contain this fire. And so there's a couple of different abbreviations to describe a fire. OC or Oscar Charlie refers to a fire that is out of control. And then there's one called Bravo Hotel or being held is essentially saying that we don't expect this fire to grow past predetermined boundaries. Then you have another classification of a fire called UC or Uniform Charlie, under control. So these three kind of categorize a fire when you roll up to it. An OC fire or an out of control fire, you want to ensure that you have that fire at least at Bravo Hotel or being held by the next 24 hour period of working. And this just, what this allows for is for resources to be reallocated into a, an initial attack type of response. So when we get dispatched to a fire, we're taking resources out of a prepared stage to go in to tackle a fire or to try to put it out. But once that fire goes from an out of control fire to a being held fire, we are allowed to remove resources from that fire and put them back onto an initial attack phase or a preparation phase for a new fire. And so always the kind of the focus is to get a fire from an out of control phase to a being held phase, just so that the next day, our duty officer knows how many resources he has available for an initial attack response, if that makes sense. As soon as you land on a fire, you want to have that fire under control in 24 hours. That's the, that's the main goal. It comes back to that idea that you shared earlier of we have more assets in these forests now. So we have buildings, we have houses, we have community centers being built further into the forest. Um, Certainly. 
right? And that that changes the policies that need to be made because obviously these buildings weren't built to withstand a forest fire. There's, <laughs> there's not a lot of buildings that can handle that much heat, right? Certainly, near Alberta. And there's a lot of natural gas resources. From Jasper East, there's a lot of natural gas pipelines and oil and gas infrastructure. And so these are certainly not designed to withstand direct flame. And so these assets alone call for a lot of attention when there's a fire surrounding them. We have to notify the owners of these assets and ask them to either A, shut their production down or something like this. And this all costs so much money and so much time as well. We don't want to allocate too many initial attack resources to this one fire just in case that that one fire gets out of control and potentially poses a risk to these assets in the forest. or hits one of these assets and then causes a larger incident as you could imagine it could <laughs> especially with natural gas and uh, and oil assets <laughs> yeah i could imagine that is adding a whole bunch of fuel <laughs> to the fire that's where things start to get dangerous i would imagine yeah no exactly it, it poses a risk for fighting the fire at that point it poses a risk for anybody on the ground anybody in the air all bunch of infrastructure and then all of our resources as well, because as soon as you have something like that, like your focus is now on that and it's not on the forest. Interesting. That's not something that crossed my mind. Whenever you hear of forest fires, you always hear about the like community infrastructure that's lost. Like in Fort McMurray, you hear about how many people's houses got lost, where people got relocated, but totally. you never hear about these industries that would have been affected. I think that's it's a byproduct of the media representation of fires as well, because I think something that never really clicked for me until maybe my second or third year was just how many fires happen in a season. There are hundreds to thousands of fires that happen every season, but you'll only hear about one or two major fires on the news. But there are certainly hundreds to, or hundreds to thousands of fires that the firefighters and uh, extra personnel are working on on a continuous basis throughout the summers. And these are all potentially threatening um, different assets or different industries or even different houses or communities. I want to come back to this other solution or other policy that I've heard of. And it comes back to this idea that you mentioned earlier that these fires are cleaning up the forest in a way. And it is part of the natural cycle of an ecosystem. And there is a lot of Indigenous communities that will do a traditional practice of burns. They'll do natural burns to burn the underbrush. Would you say that that is a solution that um, would make sense in, in specific areas to make sure that that's kind of controlling where the fires are able to go? And the other thing is, have you worked on a crew that's working on a prescribed burn or is that kind of under the jurisdiction of a different um, program? Yeah, I think that prescribed burns are a necessary tool in the toolbox of firefighting and for forest health in that sense as well. I, I can tell you that there are continuous continuous areas of land that are always under the uh, eye to be prescribed burned or to be burned simply to allow a multitude of different factors to control diseases such as mountain pine beetle, to control forest health and forest growth, 
to aid in asset or infrastructure protection should there ever be a fire in that region. Prescribed burns are typically done on the shoulder seasons of the summer, or so we're talking early spring or or late fall-ish. And this is just to allow all these indices that I was referencing earlier to, to mellow out, essentially, so that when a prescribed burn fire happens, it doesn't escape the control of those doing the prescribed burn. And uh, yes, I have had a bit of experience on that, but more so on the side of fighting fire with fire. And so this is burning out a, a section of a forest in order for you to be able to control a fire that's going to be coming near that area. One that we were doing up in Peace River, it was coming up the forest to this highway break. And so there was a natural break in the forest, but we wanted to strengthen that break. And so what we did is we took, went to the other side of the road, opposite to where the fire was burning towards. And we burnt out the ditch and a bit of the forest area so that it would be already pre-burnt. So that if any embers crossed the road and landed into the forest, there would be no fuel for that fire to continue burning into. And so that's kind of what we focused on is controlled burns in a sense of preventative nature of a fire getting outside of our control again. From your experience, what is kind of the holdback or what is there a reason that there's not more prescribed burns going on? Or is it just like they don't have the resources? Is it a community <laughs> thing? You know, I think I think it's a combination of both. We've been... I'll, I'll touch on the two you just mentioned, but the resources one is, it's it's all too often we're hearing in the news now that the BC forestry or Alberta forestry or Ontario forestry or whatever it is, has already blown their budget a month or two into the firefighting season. These are major, major incidents and they cost millions of dollars to try to handle and to try to put out all money well spent, in my opinion, for the protection of people's livelihoods, people's infrastructure, and people's lives. And so I would say that a budgetary aspect, for sure, I think plays a role that you have an exhausting fire season all the way and you blow your budget like crazy. And then you have the forest biologists and the forest rangers that want to do a prescribed burn in the off season, let's say, let's call it October, whatever. And it's just simply shut down because there are no resources available to to do such a thing. The other one is we've we've come become pretty accustomed to the fact that like fire equals bad. And so <laughs> whenever we see a fire, there is a bit of a public relations aspect to it. It's like you can't just go around burning a section of the forest wherever you want. It's scary to a lot of people to see a massive column of smoke coming off maybe around where they live. It's very nerve-wracking as as it should be of course. And so I think it's a combination of the both where you can't just go and do every single prescribed burn you want. They have to be carefully planned, carefully plotted out, and then they have to be executed with extreme caution, all of which require an extreme amount of planning. It's interesting to then see from more of like a systems perspective of looking at not just the one thing causes this, but looking at this is going to cause adverse effects here, but it's also going to cause positive things of regrowth. And it's going to be less likely that they, these events are going to happen again in those specific areas. If it's, it's interesting to see the interconnectedness of everything. The one other piece that Tamsin, who was on the podcast recently um, talked about is the 
the stacking of these events. One year you'll have a fire, forest fire that goes through a community and it's a really bad forest fire. And yes. so it gets so hot that the soil starts to repel water. And then the next year you have a flood that comes in and because of that soil, it escalates that flood. Is there any other events that you see happening in tandem with these forest fires? You know, that, that one's a tough one for me to, to speculate on, on what other events could happen. But, but I will say that, that that scenario that you just painted is very real. There is a huge connection between a forest fire rolling through one year and then extreme flooding in the next year. It's not just the hydrophobicness of the soil, but there are no older growth vegetation that is absorbing this extreme amount of water. But yeah, it is very interesting to kind of look at the, this, the, the dynamics of one event happening followed by another sequential event and then followed by another sequential event, which has a compounding impact on that area for years to come. When you see a forest fire coming through, it's burning all of the vegetation, right? It's getting all of the underbrush, it's getting everything. But when you're seeing a prescribed burn, is there more trees that will then survive that and certain plants that are making it through? Yeah, and, and there's one thing I just want to go back. When a fire rolls through an area, it's actually really incredible to see because it's typically not a complete burn. And so this was, I think, the most pronounced to me on the Forbert Murray fire because we would have to fly over this fire for about two hours a day in a helicopter just to get to the flanks of the head of the fire and whatnot. But it looks like a very patchy fire in the sense that it will roll through an area and 10 feet to the left of an area where it was a full rolling crown fire where everything was getting burnt, there could be trees that are totally untouched and same with the underbrush. And so it was very, very interesting to see that it's like when you look at a map of a fire, it's not typical to understand that that whole area has been completely burnt through. And it's also all too often that fires are more of a ground creeping fire than they are a, a rolling crown fire. And pine trees are, are typically really well suited for this. They can continue to have a fully green upper canopy to them while the underbrush and everything is burnt through. And so those trees will survive. You'll be able to see a scar on that tree if you were to ever cut it down, a fire scar, but those trees will survive all the way through that. Typically a prescribed burn, unless you're trying to kill beetles or something like that, it is more focused on getting that underbrush or that, that fuel, bottom fuel layer out of the way while kind of still preserving the pristineness of the upper canopy. It's, it's very hard to do that, but beginning a prescribed burn during the proper indices that will allow for you to clear the underbrush, clear all the, the dead debris at the forest floor while preserving the crowns of the trees. You've talked about beetles a couple times, but could you describe what the pine beetle is doing in relation to how forest fires are happening and how is that interaction playing out? Yeah, certainly. And I really want to emphasize that this is not my forte. There's a crew totally associated with pine beetle work, but I'm just kind of seeing this stuff a little bit indirectly. Essentially, it's a beetle that chews through to the xylem phloem layer of a tree. And so they essentially kill the tree by just removing any nutrients going to the upper canopy and, and from the roots. These beetles move to another tree and another tree and another tree. And so 
one of the efforts trying to control them is pheromone patches, where these crews will go out and they'll put essentially a massive area of these little patches that they staple to a tree and their pheromones to try to repel these beetles. It's really interesting to see at first hand how they're slowly moving out into the foothills and then at second hand seeing the impact that beetle killed trees play in forest fire behavior. A, a pine tree that has been killed by a beetle will, or a natural stand that has been killed by a beetle we have to treat the, those areas of the forest the same that we would treat a fast moving grass fire. Because as soon as a fire gets into there and it gets up into the crowns, it has dry dead fuel to fuel it on its way. And this is where fire behavior in those areas become very, very extreme. Just to kind of recap, the, the climate change impacts are kind of vast and almost unseen when you're talking about forest fires, right? So you have the one, which is these pine beetles, they're able to survive in the winters now, and they're impacting these forests, which are basically, it's just dry fuel for these wildfires to just get out of control. And that's also, like you're saying, it's changing the way that we're treating these fires, because now you have all of these assets that you have to be protecting, but now you also have a forest that you're like, okay, it can't get anywhere close to that forest or it's going to be, that's, that's going to be game over. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, no, it just poses another challenge and risk to the job. So. Yeah. And the last piece is just that, that increased heat. And I think that as we're seeing, like we're seeing heat waves roll through and more droughts potentially in the future. I was just reading the IPCC report that was talking about kind of the, the likelihood of these droughts, these heat waves and flooding events to happen is just going to continue to increase. I, I, I know what report you're talking about because I've read it as well. And, and there's one thing that I really try to stick to here is it's just trend following. It's very, very difficult to attribute one certain event to climate change. But what it's not hard to do is to just follow a trend. And looking at the hottest years on records, there's a clear upwards trend. Looking at the fire behavior over the past years, there's a clear trend. Looking at the droughts that we're seeing right now, there's a clear trend. If we can continue with this trend line, it's pretty safe to say that things are not going to be getting better anytime soon. I mean, the one thing that was highlighted from that report for me is not only is it not going to get better, but if we shut off all greenhouse gases right now, today, we're still going to see the effects of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. Certainly. Right? Yeah, it's, a, it's essentially... I like to kind of attribute like the, these droughts and these fires and the heat waves as a lagging indicator of our adverse effects on the climate associated with greenhouse gases, not necessarily just carbon dioxide, but like methane, CFCs, all these different items, just the anthropogenic, yeah, climate change. And then these are the trailing effects of it. I want to thank you for your time today, Adam. It was uh, great to talk to you and get some kind of firsthand experience on what these fires are looking like and get an understanding from somebody who's been on the ground of how climate change is impacting them and what kind of should happen and could happen to make them better going forward. No, absolutely. Seriously, anytime. 
Thank you all for listening. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.